Open up your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Tonight we're talking about Christus Victor, Christ having the victory. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 together. Colossians 2, let's stand as we take heed to the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, these are the words of God. For I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen my face in the flesh, so that their hearts may be encouraged having been held together in love, even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphant, uh, triumphed over them in him. Let's pray. Our Father and Sovereign Lord, since we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, make us hunger for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, and amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, as we continue in our study in the book of Colossians, we need to keep in mind that the Apostle Paul's primary aim has been the establishment and defense of the preeminence and lordship of Jesus Christ, and especially in the hearts and minds of Christians that he's never actually met before. Uh, the preeminence of Christ uh, is preeminent for Christians. What is it that goes first in your life? Is it, is it Jesus Christ or is it the self? The preeminence of Christ is preeminent for Christians. It makes sense uh, for Paul himself to be captivated by this cosmonomic vision simply based on his own testimony and experience with the risen Lord Jesus. Formerly a hater of Jesus and his Christians, uh, you remember that he was one who oversaw Stephen's execution, this man named Saul. Saul the Pharisee 
ends up becoming Paul the missionary after Jesus converted him on the road to Damascus. So Paul himself, he saw firsthand what the Lord does in your life when the Spirit regenerates you and you suddenly find yourself bowing before the true King of all things. And uh, the lesson from that is that the gospel is utterly effectual. The gospel itself is effectual. It does have an effect in the world. The gospel of the kingdom is the air we breathe. So Paul had experienced it. The Colossians had experienced it. And Paul, of course, is writing to them. And that's essentially what we have in our text this evening. The apostle anchors the dynamic nature of Christian sanctification in a particular aspect of the atonement what we celebrate every Good Friday, every year, the Atonement of Christ, there's one particular aspect that he highlights here, what we call Christus Victor, the victory of Jesus Christ over the powers of Satan, sin, and death. Over all the cosmic powers and principalities, Jesus is victorious. Now, you should know that theologians, uh, they have debated the Atonement of Christ for basically all of church history. So for 2,000 years, we're trying to understand what is it about Jesus and on the cross? What is the atonement about? What's the primary aim? Uh, What takes priority when it comes to our understanding of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, on the cross? What uh, is it the penal substitutionary atonement where he dies in our place for our sins as a penalty? Uh, is it Christus Victor, him defeating the powers of evil? Is it Amsalm's uh, satisfaction theory? Now, rather than assuming one of those to take precedent, precedence over the others, we can, we can, and we arguably should, have a multi-perspectival understanding of the atonement of Christ. And as is oftentimes the case, uh, we, it doesn't have to be an either-or dilemma. You know, which team are you on? Team Substitutionary Atonement? Are you on Team Christus Victor? Uh, We don't have to choose teams when it comes to our understanding of what Jesus did on the cross. Christ died absolutely as a substitution and a payment uh, for sin. And he did it in such a way that it satisfied the wrath of God who is holy against sin. So that is is absolutely here. Unquestionably, it's here. And Christ died, he also died, in another perspective of looking at it, he died to disarm the evil powers, to judge the world, and he cast out the ruler of this world. Those are directly from the mouth, those words are from the mouth of Jesus in John 12, 31. The unruly helminth, the worm devil, as I affectionately call him, he may have bruised Christ's heel on the cross, fulfilling Genesis 3, But Jesus, we know, had crushed his head in the process. Jesus is the snake crusher, and that's what he had come to do. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, The ruler of this world has been judged. Now, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Hebrews chapter 2 makes it very clear as well. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So you can see the dynamics involved of what the Bible says about Jesus not only paying for our sins, a debt we owed, but also defeating the devil, also defeating the evil one, crushing his head. 
And what we have, clearly have, I think, is an unstoppably victorious Savior who has redeemed us, freeing us from slavery to sin, and he did so by dying on a cross. He did so by dying on a cross in our place. He paid that debt, and there were very real transgressions involved, very real sins involved, and Jesus paid for him. And to make matters even more wonderful, he rose from the dead three days later. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he did it in order to demonstrate the finality of the payment. The payment really was gone because death had really been defeated. And the scope of that payment is also there, and the scope of that payment is the utter defeat of Christ's enemies. So we have moved from darkness to light. That's Colossians 1. Now let's consider this text again. Paul the athlete, he begins by expanding a bit more on what he said in the previous section uh, and calling him an athlete for a reason. He, He started by talking about filling up Christ's afflictions. And he has struggled, and that's the athletic metaphor here, he has struggled, he has labored on behalf of the Christians in Colossae, uh, Colossae and then Laodicea, though we often call it Laodicea, he's struggled on their behalf. He's, he's running the marathon. He's the athlete in, in the arena doing the job for them. And indeed, he has agonized, he says in verse 1, for Christians all over the place, all over the known world, even those he's never met. So Paul sees himself as engaged in this cosmic battle, this athletic event, and he's doing work on behalf of Christians all over Asia Minor, all over the Middle East at this point. He has done so because gospel ministry produces certain things in verse 2. Gospel ministry produces encouraged hearts. It It produces unity and love. He says full assurance of understanding so that you can know things fully and be assured of that, and full knowledge of God's mystery. And all of that is rooted in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is, wisdom and knowledge belongs to a person, not something on its own out in abstract land, which is what the early Gnostics were attempting to do. They wanted to depersonalize wisdom and knowledge. But wisdom and knowledge are items that are hidden in Christ. They are deposited in Christ. Uh, They are concealed in Christ. In fact, they are only retrievable in Christ. If you want wisdom and knowledge, you have to go to Christ, the Lord of glory. Uh, You can't have it on your own. You can't appeal to, to Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. You can't appeal to them. You have to have Christ. So if you want wisdom and knowledge, you have to have Christ. He is the possessor of both. Now, in the, in the Jewish world, when you heard the phrase wisdom and knowledge, some of you, you should immediately think of like Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is how you get those things, right? In the Jewish world, uh, Torah, the, the Torah, the law, that was where wisdom and knowledge was held. But here we have to remember that Jesus is Torah. He is law. He is the, the one who has given us the law of God in its most pure, undiluted uh, expression, So there's no need to look beyond him. There's no real value in searching for this knowledge in a pagan construct either. Christ is all. Christ holds all. Christ establishes all. And what is Jesus? He is all. He is all. Now, the goal of gospel ministry, this is what he talks about here in verses 1 through 5. The goal is maturity in Jesus. 
That is what we want for every Christian who names the name of Christ. Maturity in Jesus. And one of the aims of maturity is the prevention of dilly-dallying in your life. It's the prevention of self-deception and delusion. And those things can come running along. They can trundle along in your life when someone confronts you with a, verse 4, a persuasive argument. You could be doing an apologetics engagement. You could be sharing the gospel with a friend. And you could, maybe they'll stump you. That's a persuasive argument. That seems interesting. Now, we have to stand guard against that. We, we, we have to stand guard against that because if you don't have the maturity uh, in Christ to know his word, to have a, a foundation on him in wisdom and knowledge, then anybody can come along, the most bratty, snotty college student, we've seen them all, they'll come along and say, well, we actually think this. And you, you might be tempted to think, wow, that's, that's great. That's persuasive. But really, you should think that's the most ridiculous fallacy I've ever heard and then tell them that. It goes well, usually. <laughs> now, when one isn't mature in Christ, he or she can be seduced or beguiled. That's the King James language there. Beguiled or enticed by pithy speech and finely tuned reasoning. Again, in the college thing has been going on for decades. We've already seen uh, after Harvard toppled, then you had Yale and that toppled, then you had Princeton and that top was toppled by humanism. So they truly have marched through all the institutions and, and set humanism as the God. And uh, that's, that's what we have. We have a lot of seduction going on in our world by finely tuned arguments that seem persuasive. And the only way to prevent that, especially parents as we teach our kids how to think, the only way to prevent this is to hold fast to Christ whose treasures are available to us all. Now, the less, the less we hold to gospel truth, the more susceptible we are to worldly folly. Uh, even though Paul is bodily absent from the Colossians, he is with them in spirit and certainly in prayer. And uh, in verse 5, their good order, he notes, that phrase good order coupled with stability of faith in Christ, Paul celebrates that. It's worthy of rejoicing. There's good order in your life. There's stability of faith. This is a good thing. Uh, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul will use the language about being carried away by winds of doctrine. So you're like a boat on, out in the great vast ocean, and these bad doctrines can come, and if you're not a boat that's stable and well fortified in Christ, then you're shipwrecked, and that's kind of the same thing here. You have to have good order. You have to have stability. And this means here in verse 5 that doctrine and discipline in, is the life of the church. Doctrine and discipline is the life of the church. Faith is, is orderly itself. Uh, faith is orderly, and, and it's also uh, order itself is, is an expression of faith. So Christians should have orderly lives. To some degree or another, you should have orderly, not chaotic lives. You should not be finding yourself carried away uh, by the, the world. Um, the world wants you in a tizzy. <laughs> The world wants you to be stressed out at Christmas. Uh, the world wants you to be all of these things, and you have to have stability and good order. And the, the metaphor here, actually the way Paul uses it, the metaphor pertains to fortifications that are established by a military unit. So to have good order and stability is to simply have a good barracks with good leaders, everybody's guns clean real nice, and you're ready to go. That's orderliness. 
So during a conflict, preparation for battle must be made, and in Christ, who is the captain and the commander of our salvation, we are ordered and firm. When we follow his orders as as the good commander-in-chief that he is, then our lives look a certain way, and there's glory in that. So consequently then, maturation is the defense of doctrine and the practice of discipline. If you want maturity in the Christian faith, you have to defend sound doctrine, you have to know sound doctrine, which means you have to know the Word, and you also have to have the the practice of discipline in your life. How does your, like, are you in the Word? Are you um, trusting Christ even when things get a little precarious? Are you not being carried away by the culture, but instead you're standing firm? You know your convictions and you're willing to stand for them. We know how the churches did their report card. They got an F the past two years. So we know how that went. It did not go well because we didn't stand firm. And that's what we're called to do in in maturity. So faith in Christ, the faithful one, is our battle strategy. That is the strategy. And coincidentally, it is our faith that overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4. Now in verses 6 and 7, we have a command. And the command is to walk in Christ, he says in verse 6. Walk in Christ. To walk is a Jewish expression, and it pertains to ethics and conduct. And you might recall Psalm 1 is probably the most well-known example. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right? There's blessing in walking the correct way. And properly walking is how we flesh out our faith. Loyalty. Loyalty to Christ, loyalty to, to, to the body of Christ, persistence, um, commitment. These are virtues. These are things that we are supposed to exhibit. I would throw tenacity in there because, you know, tyrants must be toppled too. And all of this, all of it keeps us rooted or grounded or built up. In verse 7, established in Christ. Standing firm is not standing still. Standing firm is not standing still. The Christian who doesn't walk is a disobedient Christian. Faith is to be exercised, not atrophied. Thanksgiving and gratitude, when when abounding, is God's mathematical formulation for inexorable blessing. When we exercise our faith, we do it with gratitude, we do it with thanksgiving, we do it with some level of exuberance for what Christ has done, and when that abounds, blessing abounds. That's the general nature of the formula. And the Colossians were instructed about Christ so that they would walk in Christ. They were instructed about Him so they could walk in in Christ. Doctrine again and discipline. Knowing the Word, obeying the Word. that's That's the plan here. Nothing crazy, nothing secretive like the Gnostics. Just know the Word, act on the Word. Discipline, doctrine, those things. Now before exposing the the heresy, there's this heresy that's been going around in Colossae, Paul, he keeps them grounded in what they were taught so that they can finish well. Christians are called to faithfulness. Christians are called to rootedness. Children, you too. You are called to be rooted like a very big, strong redwood tree in California. You are to be rooted. You are to be rooted in Christ. You're a tree. Be planted in Him. And uh, rootedness, of course, requires, <laughs> requires that conviction. We need to have the conviction. We need to be grateful for Christ. We need to know who He is. We need to love Him. That's how you become rooted. In verse 8, we have a warning, though, now. We had a command. Now we have a warning in verse 8. 
Do not be taken captive. Do not be taken captive. The word used here refers to this action of of kidnapping or plundering someone, stealing and taking along the the items, whatever it is you want. And what is it we're not to be taken captive by? Well, he says in verse 8, philosophy and empty deception. As someone who enjoys philosophy, he's not talking about philosophy proper as an explanation for scientific inquiry and all that. He's talking about a particular philosophy. Remember that we've been discussing the Colossian heresy. It presented itself in in basically two forms. One was this neo-Jewish Torah observation where you had to observe the Torah very strictly, similar to what the Galatian problem was, but you also had this mixture of a neo-Grecian speculation about metaphysics and life and mystery and, and all of these uh, you know, inner, inner knowledge that leads to escape from the body and rescue, that sort of thing. So it was a blend of all of that. And the second temple period of the day was no doubt rife with philosophical Gnosticism and Torah zeal. Those things were all swirling right now. And you think of our time, well, what is it that's going on in our world? What, are the, what is the philosophy that's kind of captured us? Statism, sexual debauchery, a lot of those things. So navigating that can be a challenge, but that was the challenge for them in their day. Now, what were the three marks, what were the three things that marked this false belief? Well, first, we're told here in verse 8, pay attention to to this, I want you to see through the three things. We're told that it was empty deception. It was empty deception, meaning that it was enticing and it promised much, but it actually gave nothing and it deceived people. Okay, it's like signing up for that multi-level marketing company that never really actually went anywhere. They're selling products they didn't have and people were buying things that they didn't need, that sort of situation. So empty deception. Second, the philosophy came from the tradition of men. So many men, including the Greek philosophers, the the Jewish Talmudic uh, commentators, they had sought to give the world an accounting of reality which unfortunately was beyond what the Creator God had revealed to us in Scripture. So they want a world without God. So they explain the world without God. We presuppose that God isn't there, therefore this. That's what the tradition of men will do. Traditions, for the sake of theologically astute faith and practice, is encouraged. Right? And you can do those in your home. Maybe you have traditions uh, during the Christmas Advent time. Where you're doing those at home. You have traditions. Great, because it's pointing to something that's truthful, right? It's pointing to something that is glorious. Um, but tradition for the sake of man-made tradition should be taken to the curb with the rest of the trash. <laughs> Why do we do what we do? Well, because someone told us we should. Well, that's sort of empty-headed. We should have a little more thought <laughs> into why we do what we do. Now, the third thing, this philosophy sprung from elementary principles of the world, which should be understood to mean religious presuppositions that are based on man's own reasoning, coupled with cosmological beliefs about astrology and angels and these principalities that are out there. These these are false gods fueled by false religious motives, which come from hearts saturated in falsity. You know, falsity begets falsity. That's, that's the program. To put it another way, it's the age-old elevation of the creature and the creation over against the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
It's maximizing creation over against the Creator. Now, in verses 9 through 15, we have a reason, a reason for turning to truth and running from this empty philosophy. Christ is the conqueror. Contrary to this philosophy's vain assumptions about escaping the body, that's what everybody wants. A lot of Christians do that today. I want to just escape my body. This, I don't like my body. It's just this, I'm, I'm going to get old and die, and I just want to leave. I'm going to get away. And we have this platonic, dualistic worldview that actually affects how we engage in the world, which is why things are the way they are today. But that philosophy emphasized that, escaping the body, being blissfully whisked off into the idealized sunset. Instead of that, Paul says that in him, verse 9, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christians do not worship anything created. Christians do not worship anything created. Rather, we, well, we shouldn't. <laughs> shouldn't. We worship the God whose presence is real and full in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We don't worship anything created. We worship Christ. Jesus isn't a subordinate God among other gods. He embodies deity as deity. Shekinah glory is in Him. Turning away from the philosophy that subtly deceives us compels us because of man's reason and lures us by things that might seem right. Turning from that is only possible in Christ where deity dwells. Now, any perceived power or popularity, uh, whether it's religious or even political, I get so tired of the political, I, I can almost never go anymore to these rallies. They just, they worship these people. They, they're supposed to be servants. They should be cleaning my shoes, and I'm supposed to take a picture with them. It's annoying. But any perceived power, any of that, it has the capability of coaxing, coaxing us in, doesn't it? Luring us in. Trapping us in its perceived promise of everlasting peace. But Christians must not. And why must you not? Jesus, the conqueror. The conversation shifts a bit here by elevating the glory of man's bodily existence. Here Christ has filled his people. Verse 10, he is the head over all rule and authority. One writer said, as the head and conqueror of every authority and as the very sphere of the Christian's new existence, Christ's place in the Christian life is all-inclusive and it is exclusive of all others. Any alien power, philosophy, uh, or aberrant theology, or person who would dare to be elevated by men is met with the truth that Christ is the head. Christ is the head. He's at the top of that mountain. He tolerates no rivals. He's the conqueror. He does not uh, go away to his vacation house and let someone else take over. No. He doesn't tolerate it. And as the head of all things, Jesus, and only Jesus, has circumcised his people without hands or a knife. A new and improved permanent circumcision, verse 11, is present with King Jesus, the kind that forever cuts the foreskin of the heart. Now we had the former covenant sign of circumcision in the Older Testament, and that itself, even in Deuteronomy 10, pointed to the circumcision of, of the heart. But with the coming of Christ and His Spirit, we now have the new covenant sign of baptism, 
which replaced circumcision, which is the reason why babies are baptized, because the signs changed. And this heart circumcision is made complete thanks to the Holy Spirit who does the cutting. Now, he says in verse 12, in Christian baptism, what are we symbolizing in Christian baptism? The, the subject, the person here, is covenantally buried with Christ, and he's raised up with him through faith in the work of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 12. Formerly dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh, the Colossians, and we here today who, are, who name the name of Christ, we have been made alive with Christ, he says. Verse 13, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. So we were dead. Christ makes us alive. Baptism points to the covenant, which gives us that sign. That is the circumcision of Christ. Now, I want to make a quick comment here, a side note on this topic. Gentiles are circumcised just like the Jews were in both Testaments. In the Old Testament, um, you think of even uh, during the time of Esther, many of them became Jews uh, who were Gentiles, and part of that would have been for the males to take on the physical circumcision as a sign of the covenant. So they, but they were all given that same sign, and obviously only, only the men were involved in that. Uh, the, the young, the young uh, boys went after they're born. But in the New Covenant, though, something shifted and something changed. It is Christ's circumcision. He refers to Christ's circumcision here. It's also known as Christian baptism. He ties those two things together. And that portrays the covenant working of God in the hearts of men, women, and children. The, the covenant opened up, so now women and children, the children were always a part of the covenant anyway. That didn't change in the New Testament the sign just simply moved from circumcision to baptism. And that is part of his argument here. Now, verse 14. Moving from the heart, he goes from the heart to the universe. He kind of just jumps out and zooms out. Paul explains that Christ has canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Now, the reason sins can be forgiven against the Creator God is because the law of God, which condemns the unrighteous, that's uh, 1 Timothy 1, has been changed from being an instrument of condemnation to an instrument of sanctification. This is hugely important for Christians today to understand. When Paul says in Romans 6, for example, that we're under grace and not law, he doesn't mean, oh, we're under grace and that law of the Old Testament is so terrible and icky, I can't believe God ever did it. No, he's simply saying you've moved from the condemnation that the law gives you as a dead sinner, you've moved out of that condemnation into now the law provides you a path for sanctification and obedience, not in your own heart, but into the world, which is why the civil magistrates should be obeying the law of God and which is why we insist upon it. So it's changed from an instrument of condemnation to an instrument of sanctification. The law, with its decrees against us, the, the legal and financial debt that was accrued because of our sin, is no longer a problem for the righteous. If you're in Christ, the debt is gone. And boy, did you rack up a credit card debt on that account. Christ paid for it all. It's no longer a problem. He says our sins were nailed to the cross. That's where they're at. Your sins tomorrow, if you wake up cranky because you didn't whatever, <laughs> those sins, and then you mouthed off to somebody, right? And, oh, it, Monday already. Those sins are put on the cross. 
They're nailed there. And you need to tell yourself that repeatedly so that you know and believe that they're there so you don't try to retrieve them off the cross. You know, I wasn't done. Let me take this back. And that's what, what, what Christians are tempted to do, to take it right back off the cross. So our moral and religious debts were put there with Jesus who knew no sin. And the reason Paul brings up this issue right after a discussion of circumcision, and you think, what a weird thing, right? We went from that to this. The reason he does that is because Jesus' death on the cross was a cutting off of the flesh of the people of God. Now, let me explain that, okay? Because he uses this phrase, the circumcision of Christ. And we've already connected it to Christian baptism. But what is the cross about? Because you're buried with him, right? You're, you're, you die, you're on the cross. You're, you're dead with Christ. You're buried with Christ. You're raised with Christ. That's the paradigm of the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 4, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It's all over the place. But what is the circumcision of Christ? Jesus' death was a representative covenantal death. That's, that's us up there, Right? And his death was like a circumcision of the flesh of his body. Not only who he was as an individual, but also who he represented. That's our circumcision. That's the flesh that was cut off. His actual body dead on the cross. That's what was cut off. His entire body was stripped away. It was stripped away. In Christ, our sinful natures are cut away our cutaway, dying with Christ on the cross. So his death is our death. That's what baptism symbolizes. We die with Christ. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. That is what we might call Christian baptismal circumcision. And tied to this whole thing, he rounds it out here in verse 15, is the fact that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public display of them, having triumphed over them. The, the rulers and authorities, the Jewish leaders at the time and the Roman politicians conspiring together, which is what the book of Revelation portrays, coupled with the fallen angelic rulers and principalities that enticed them in this way, they've been disarmed. They have been stripped away. So captives, uh, when you think, put yourself in, in the Roman world 2,000 years ago, captives were stripped away of their clothing as was Jesus on the cross. We don't talk about it much, but Jesus would have been naked on the cross. That was to contribute to the humiliation. The clothes that were given to Adam and Eve, Jesus took those, wore them, and they ripped them off. So he was stripped away in that sense. He was stripped away, and just like a captive, he was taken captive by the principalities and the powers. That's what the cross does. Now, the unjust stripping and disarmament of Jesus on the cross was actually... Take another look, the just stripping and disarmament of the angelic powers and principalities that orchestrate sin in the hearts and minds of men. So fallen angels, also known as demons, do influence people. And the influence leaders, I'm pretty sure they've got DC by, uh, around the neck. But they're, they're doing that. And those powers and principalities have been defeated but they're being defeated in history progressively. So in principle, the victory is over. We have more work to do. And Paul says uh, that, that had they known, this is 1 Corinthians 2.8, had they known that this would be the outcome, had Pilate known, had the religious leaders, Caiaphas, all these guys known that, that what was going to happen, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. But they did know 
uh, they did rather, they did crucify him, and it was the undoing of their kingdom, their philosophies, their scheming. Death was destroyed at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, and in that moment when Christ was raised, he led a great procession through the world uh, with the utter defeat of all power that runs contrary to the gospel. The resurrection was a victory parade. And this is, by the way, a clear reference to the Roman celebration after the victory of the enemy. Uh, that's in Paul's mind. Whenever Rome would go, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, they would go to a neighboring territory and say, you either join us or we kill you. And that's a great version of peace, right? So they said, well, sure, happily. Some fought, but many of them just surrendered. And uh, after they surrendered, they would take their stuff. They'd take their money, their central banking, you name it, all of it. They'd run it back to Rome. And usually they would parade the captives through the streets. Prisoners could be in some sort of mobile prison uh, behind bars, if you will, uh, probably just really strong wooden structures. But they would parade them through and, and, ha, look what we did. That's what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. He paraded all, he, he was basically grabbed Satan around the neck and just dragged him through the streets. This guy is done. He's toast. That is the victory of Christ. This great procession through the city. He marched through the city on a white horse, publicly displaying his victory over darkness and its bedraggled accomplices. In, in Paul's mind, the old despots and the rulers, they've been deposed. They have no power now over anybody. They, they try to have power, but they don't. They have no authority over the Christian. So the nation's gods are proven to be phony and paltry. So at the cross, God is shown to hate sin. Absolutely. We look at the cross of Christ, God hates sin. But also at the cross, God is shown to be steadfast in defeating any rival powers. Negatively, the debt has been paid. But positively, the powers have been defeated. And all of it was, was done publicly. Paul says as much in the book of Acts. Uh, none of this was done in a corner. It was all public. So Christianity is a public religion. It's always meant to be. It started that way. It will finish that way. It was all public. But the Colossians, and then us too, we've been transferred into this victorious family of God. Christ is the victor. How do we live now? A few thoughts. First, notice that all of this is in the past tense. You read your Bible. One tip I give, I'll give to you. Look at what's in the past tense forgave, canceled, nailed, disarmed, freed, displayed, triumphed. Past tense, which is good because uh, the Greek language can get a little funky on that stuff, but it, the English brings it out. And this is simply mean, this is simply, all of these things, it's simply what it means to be the people of the cross. The people of the cross, the people of the resurrection, certain things have happened in the past, which is why certain things can now happen in the present and in the future. The work has been finished. Christ has already won, which means the work of the church in the world now, listen, the work of the church for the next few thousand years, as I see it, it's a mop-up job. It's a mop-up job. The victory's over. The victory is over. We just have to go and tell the world. And we've not done a good job at it. We have to tell them. The powers have been destroyed. They're powerless. Biden's White House is powerless. Fauci's NIH is powerless. They're all powerless. They think they have power. The only power they have is what we give them. Christ is victorious, not them. And people still will give them all the power in the world. Tax us more, please. I've not yet paid enough. 
right? And they want it, and nobody wants to sound the alarm and say, maybe this is a problem. Maybe it's an issue. So how do men give power to defeated enemies? Giving themselves over to it. That's the answer. That's the answer. Paul's admonition is clear here. He says, do not be taken by empty philosophy. Be taken by Christ. Don't be taken by that stuff. Be taken by Christ. Don't, don't go looking around for wisdom and knowledge in the trash can. Run to Christ. Don't, don't be taken by the empty, deceitful traditions of men. Be taken by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the culture around us wants you to look at holiness and see it as filth. They want you, wives at home, to be viewed as slaves, but freed as they go to work for their overlords and pay more taxes. That's what they want. They want that. They want holiness to be seen as filth, for you to look to, look to the toilet and find a good source of water. That's our political economy right now. Drink here. The world wants you to see righteousness as unrighteousness. Sin is a blessing. Justice as majority will. Gender as social construct. Freedom as fascism. Up is down. Down is up. Orwellian news speak. That's the official policy of the day. And this is because man is searching for this integration point we spoke of two weeks ago. In his fallen state, sinful men will always, they will go anywhere and everywhere to search for wisdom and knowledge so long as it is in Christ. They will go everywhere for it. Western culture, by and large, has rejected Christ the conqueror and has instead adopted something else altogether. Christianity is, it is believed now, Christianity is believed to be an impediment to true spirituality. For example, I want to apply this here specifically. New Age paganism. New Age paganism has, as a result of unbelief, overrun our nation. That's what's driving a lot of this, mind you. The New Age spiritualists are generally centered on these three pillars. These three pillars. One is monism, which just means that all is one. Monism. Two is pantheism. All is God. So God, God is um, in the wood here. He's in the lights. He's in, he is the electricity. He's in the piano keys. Um, all is God, right? Uh, all is God. And then three is mysticism. And mysticism tells us that there's this experiential oneness that we can have with the divinity that's all. That is what's driving the American train right now. New Agers, who are made in God's image, of course, they carefully construct their own version of salvation and holiness. So to start, it seems good to them to remember that they are part of the oneness, the great unity. We're all one. It's so great, aren't we? We're just, we're in this together. Oh, if I ever hear that phrase again. <laughs> They've ruined it for me. <laughs> Since everything is one and that one is God, the goal of holiness is this mysticism, this, uh, an experiential transformation into this new God consciousness. So you got to look within to find God, because God's in you, and you got to figure out a way to connect with this God so that you can be enlightened and moved. Jesus becomes a good spiritual teacher, just like Buddha. The Bible has some decent points, of course, especially about love, even though they don't, they don't read the whole thing. They're just part of it. They know, they know Matthew well, but Jesus said, judge not, <laughs> lest ye be judged. 
Um, eschatology is about this transcendent integration, integration into deity. So what, what happens in this worldview? Well, ethics are relative. So if it's true for you and right for you, then fine. Um, ethics are relative. Truth is something to expunge. You can you take it or leave it. You can get rid of it if you want. Self-discovery in this monadic deity takes priority. In other words, the self is the preeminent source of wisdom and knowledge. That's why the Barnes & Noble bookstores, whatever's left, had to expand their shelves to deal with this new self-discovery category. Look to you. In you are hidden all the wisdom, treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And all of this is done in the name of tolerance and enlightenment and liberation. And that's what fallen men want. They do not want liberation from their sins against the God that they know exists, but liberation from this God's all-encompassing demands. And I bring this up because not only is the New Age paradigm gaining more ground, it is doing so because Christians have not con contended for the faith in the public square. We have chosen to ignore the clear victory of Christ as outlined here and ignore the headship of Christ over all things. And as a result, we have relegated ourselves to irrelevance and in insignificance. We have not called on the nations to repent for their sins and turn to the living God. And listen, there are, there are dangers outside of Christianity, but there are just as many dangers inside. Meaning that the, the threat of vain, empty, pagan philosophy, that's out there, and it's definitely a threat, but it's just as dangerous as a threat of a, of a distorted, truncated Christianity. False teachers in the church today are innumerable. They promise that Jesus is tolerant of their preferred sexuality, that God's law is oppressive, but Jesus gets us and thus doesn't demand anything from us. They promise that Jesus plus anything your little heart desires is freedom, but this, of course, is a check that cannot be cashed. Returning to the old order, the old nature, the former status of enmity with God, which is what false teachers are selling, that is to turn from victory to defeat, and it's absurd. The need of the hour, friends, is a recovery of a strong, vibrant Christian faith rooted in the authority of the Word of God. Coming to Christ means that we've been woven into the fabric of this cosmic redemption. We're, we're in. Christ is King. We need to know the victory of Christ. We need to know that those baptized in Christ are made alive in Him, and we participate in the victory over the evil and the darkness. We need to know, and kids, I want you to know that too, but you need to know relativism doesn't work. Christianity isn't just one option among many. The reincarnation and occultism and witchcraft and new age you know, mediation, all of that is detrimental. It's injurious to people. You need to know that you participate in Christ in this way. And furthermore, we need to know that the creation fall redemption paradigm, the ground mode of the Christian faith, it involves every area of life. Sins forgiven, Christ defeated death and the powers that towed it around. We've been truly, we've truly been rescued. So we don't need any, we don't need to add anything to this glorious plan of redemption. We have what we need in Christ. So why turn away? Why turn away to empty philosophy? Why hop, Christians do this all the time. Why hop around from one Christian fad to another? You know, are you a purpose-driven Christian? Are you a circle-making Christian? No, I'm a Jesus trounced Satan Christian. That kind. What is that? <laughs> so we have what we need. We have to stay grounded. Christ is victorious. Let me end with this. What does, what does the supremacy and victory of Christ do for you? 
What does it do for you? Everything. It does everything. It orders your life. It makes you stable. It informs your responsibilities that you have tonight and then when you wake up. It equips you for victory in the world. The reconciling mission of the church is to infiltrate all things, announcing the victory of Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, and death. Stop sullying around, sulking around, thinking, oh, woe is me. No, Christ is alive and he's ruling and reigning. And when we announce to the world that it belongs to Jesus Christ, we're changed, they're changed, nations are changed, uh, culture is renewed, Christ is king. Friends, we must declare it. We must declare it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this incredible passage regarding the victory of Christ in the world. I pray that you would strengthen us that faith would be nurtured and strengthened and matured as we, we look at a passage like this. Um, we know that the world is, is looking everywhere but to you, to the throne room of God. And what a tragedy. And because of that, we've seen so much wickedness paraded around, not knowing that it itself is the one being paraded around. I pray that you would strengthen your church for this great task God, bless our homes and our families, bless our church, and may the nations be discipled. We give it all to you and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.